Ah, mmm. The first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At Caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to Caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at Caskers.com. Hey, what's up? Welcome back to the show. I'm recording this intro from my hotel room in Savannah, Georgia, about to head to Charleston and then on to Wilmington and then the Outer Banks. I recorded a series of podcasts while I was in Florida at the Florida Surf Film Festival, one with Derek Hind, which includes, I mean, undoubtedly the greatest 20 minutes of audio that I've ever recorded. Derek's storytelling is unparalleled. The The episode's actually two hours, but there's a 20 to 30 minute segment in there that is just jaw dropping. Um, so look forward to that. The, then I did an interview, kind of co-interview with Marcus Sanders. Uh, he and I interviewed Momentum Generation filmmaker Michael Zimbalist. Then I got uh, to interview a few surfboard shapers, Matt Keckley, Bruce Reagan from Quiet Flight, Ricky Carroll, and then I'm going to cap off the series with C.J. Hobgood. So that Florida series will be released in about a month. You can look forward to that. Today's show was recorded on Maui, and there's a really kind of much richer story to tell about Maui uh, than what I'm going to do here. I would love to do a series on that island because there's just so much richness, such characters, such variety of waves. Lahaina was the capital of Hawaii from 1820 to 1845, so there's political history there. It's just a really fascinating place. Uh, but I was there mainly on a family vacation, so I didn't spend too much time recording podcasts. Recording with Jeff Timponi, however, was a necessity for me um, for reasons that'll be obvious as you listen. He's been building boards for 50 years. He's worked alongside all the icons. He's still currently on the cutting edge of sustainable surfboard construction, thanks mainly to the guidance from his son and laminator, Nick. And his origin story and journey to Hawaii took place in a very interesting time in American history. So I know that you'll enjoy Jeff's story. Quick reminder, though, before we get into that, um, Spy is going to gift a $500 gift card to one person who uses our promo code in the month of Dece- in the month of November before the 20th, so about five days from now. All that you need to do to be entered to win that is purchase a pair of sunglasses or goggles on spyoptic.com. Use our promo code podcast, and then you'll be entered to win. From those names, I'll randomly select a winner and then announce it on Instagram on November 20th. You can use that $500 gift card on spyoptic.com to do your holiday shopping or just build out a quiver of sunglasses for yourself. And then we're going to do it again in um, December. So another $500 gift card that'll be picked on December 20th. Spy was the first sponsor partnership for us here on this podcast. 
So you guys, the listeners, have shown a lot of support, and then they just wanted to do something nice for the holidays, and that's it. A $1,000 gift distributed amongst two lucky listeners. Thank you. Spyoptic.com, promo code podcast. Okay, this is David Scales for Surf Splendor. Enjoy my conversation with Jeff Timponi. wasn't that long ago. I mean, we got here in 89. So it wasn't like the early, early days. No, no. no. I have friends that were here in the late 60s and 70s, and they said it was just like the old West. You know, it was, it was, it was pretty wide open, but you know, there was no Costco, no Kmart, no Lowe's. You had all your shopping at, there was food land, but that was downtown. So if you lived up country, you know, Makawa, Pukalani and or Haiku side, Paia, you were shopping at these little mom and pop stores. Yeah. You know, then you know, I can name three or four of them. But the prices were just, you know, a box of cream of wheat was eight fifty. Right. <laughs> it was pretty it was pretty interesting. Yeah. Uh cheers by the way. Oh. Big Mahalo. Officially. Thank you, David. Great to uh finally get this yeah. sit down yeah, opportunity. Yeah, no, this is wonderful. I'm awesome. stoked. We're drinking uh tequila and mango lemonade mid afternoon. Uh, well, let's start. I'm glad with... you qualified that. Yes, it's yes. mid afternoon. It's like three. <laughs> exactly. Yes. Yeah, it's three o'clock. Um, firstly, my board's working perfectly. Oh, stoked! Working out amazingly well. Stoked. Oh, the um, one I loaned you yesterday. No, the one that <laughs> that one too. Um, the one that I actually had you guys make. Do you want to describe what you made? Well, it's a, a design we call the pill, and it's kind of. You know, it's a it's a performance board, but it's low rocker, usually a little wider, a little more volume. Say ninety percent of the ones I've done have been rounded pins or round tails, and it's it's more of a small wave design. That's for Hawaiian waters. You know, you could push it up a little bit with the right fins. Um, yeah, it was just you know trying to do something a little bit different that wasn't a fish. Yeah, I think. You and I had the conversation in the water yesterday, but I wanted to rehab it for listeners because they go through the process of working with shapers and trying to communicate what their needs and wants are and all that sort of stuff. And what I was explaining to you was like, I think that I have done myself a disservice in the past by giving shapers too much information. Mm -hmm. And I think that they are then trying to accommodate my requests and potentially not exploring what it is that they would normally explore. Because, by the way, they are craftsmen on a journey, constantly getting better. And then if somebody comes in and gives them conflicting information with whatever their journey is, they're going to go ahead and accommodate that customer. So my thought was like, okay, I don't want to make that mistake again. Uh, and I don't know what the waves are like in Maui. And you've been here for 30 plus years. So here's what I will tell you. I've been riding a fish all summer. The one thing that I don't want is a high-performance shortboard because I know even though I can ride them and I still ride them occasionally, I need good waves to ride them in. 
so that is a limited window of kind of where I could use it. So I've been riding a fish. I've been having a blast on the fish. But the reality is I don't need another fish. So if I was just bringing boards out here, I'd bring a fish or two and probably try to ride that. But I'm not doing that and I don't want the fish. But I would like something that is rippable and a short board. So what do you got? And that's basically the pill is yeah. what you came up with. Yeah. Five eight. Yeah. And and like I said, it's a little wider. Maybe just and, and I was, you know, as a shaper, you know, I've always had more information you give me the better. But I'm gonna take it and guide it into a okay. workable project. You know, if you give me I want I mean, and I get tons of requests because all I do is really is custom orders. Right. So I get lots of different design theory, but I'll tweak it into something. Okay, I know this is gonna it's gonna work. You know, kind of have a I've had you know, like I was telling Nick this morning. Hey, if we weren't doing something right, we wouldn't still be here after almost fifty years of shaping. So I always tweak them. You know, they can tell me what they want, or they bring in someone else's board well this is what i've been riding on but i'll take it and i'll kind of turn it into a timponi right that's just and and try to make them you know user friendly that's been kind of my thing is i try to make them so they they're easy to ride a little more durable than some you know they're i don't you know hey are you going to be doing aerials then you don't need a single six deck and a single four bottom board right right you know i'd rather the customer got their money's worth right well what's interesting about the board that you made me is um, everybody always says everybody who's trying to give somebody advice who's going to be coming in surfing in Hawaii always says foam is your friend because especially being from Southern California you um, underestimate just powerful Hawaiian waves mm-hmm. and so knowing that you were building me the five eight I was and it's EPS by the, we should get into the construction but knowing that you were building me a five eight I was like. You know what you're doing, so I'm not going to question your your decision. But, man, will that hold in juicier surf? Mm-hmm. And we haven't surfed anything big, but um, the waves do certainly have more power and meat than they do at home. And the board has absolutely held. Like, And I put bigger fins in it, um, but the board, it hasn't once. It feels skatey and rippable. Like a lot of shortboards I write at home, but with no real deficit um, because of the wave size. I thought it might sketch out a little bit. hasn't at all. Like in steep drops going right into a bottom turn with a lot of speed and drive, it holds completely. So um, it works. It just works. Now, and it would probably work in a little more size than you might imagine okay. because, you know, um, Nick rides them. He's kind of kooky, you know, like a lot of the kids that were kind of born and raised here. He'll go out when it's big, and he's riding a 5'11", you know. And, like, I just come from a different generation. Yeah. You know, so all my, oh, God, my, my smallest board's a, a 7'10", you know. And yeah. And they go up from there, you know, whatever. But does he, do those boards work for him? Do his small boards work correctly he, in yes. those waves? Yes. Okay. Yeah, he makes some work. And, you know, he's one of those guys that goes down to the beach with no fins in his board. He looks out and goes, hey, it's a quad day or it's a thruster day. Okay. And he's got a couple different sizes of fins in those parameters as well. Right. And I get a ton of feedback from, you know, I'm blessed. I got over here and ran into a bunch of really good surfers who started and kiteboarders. And, you know, the, it was I was blessed to be in this funny evolution of, of surfboards Yeah. from toe to kite to stand-up paddle now foil you know that just i kind of was like i said i was blessed just to be in the right place at the right time but the boards 
you know, the rails are thin enough. That's what's going to hold you in. Okay. The fins are going to help too. The, the, another thing I was just talking to someone about is fins are so important in surfboards. I mean, I've been making my own boards for 50 years, and basically every one, I'm still dialing it in with the fins. That's shocking. Because I'm, but I'm chasing a feeling. You know, it's just like, and, and I, my boards are all over the spectrum. You know, I mean, mostly now they're getting bigger and bigger. But I'm riding quads. Well, when I was younger and able to surf, I, I'd get a quad and I'd hit the, the, it seemed like the sweet spot shrank. And it could have been my design, could have been my shape. But I'd ride them and I'd get a couple of great rides and I'd be paddling back. Oh, I'm back. Okay, get out of my way. And then over the handlebars on the next one. I'd stand up and it seems like burp throughout the sea anchor. I could, just couldn't figure them out. Now, because in my longer boards, I was usually riding a two plus one or just a thruster. And like the two boards I've got, I just couldn't figure them out. And finally, oh, I put the extra box and just set it up for a quad. First wave, oh my God, it, that's what I needed. So I don't know if it's length of board or, I, I don't know. I know the fact that you're still trying to figure it out <laughs> feels daunting <laughs> to me. And almost like, there's so many variables that I can't even anticipate yeah. that uh, can we just get me a user-friendly board with a user-friendly set of fins and I'll just stick with that because it's too much information yeah. almost, yeah. you know. And, however. Yeah. And, no, go ahead. Well, it's kind of like, however, while I want to take that easier path, once I do feel the sensation that you're talking about, I have to chase it. I have oh, yeah. to then figure out why those fins and why that shape and then get different sets and yeah. Try it, you know. And, and as a shaper slash board builder, you know, you when you're finished shaping the board, you sit there, you pull out your 24-inch metal ruler, and you mark where the fins go. Well, gosh, every, you know, there, there's not only the actual placement of the fins, there's the angle, the cant, the, you know, there's all these other factors you move it a degree or two here and there, and it's a totally different board. Uh, you've experienced having a board, yeah, you know something, and, and maybe the guy who built it, hey, throw some different fins in it. Yep. Shrink the sides, grow the back, do something, and all of a sudden, boom, it works. Yep. You know, and, and so that's, you know, I try to make the platform is, so you're going to float you, you're going to be able to dip it, you're going to you know, catch waves, you're gonna, you know, it's going to glide right through the water, it's not going to be a plow. But the but the feel of the actual ride, it's also personal. It is, you know, every because we're all weighting the boards different, front foot, back foot, balanced. You know, it, it's all different. I mean, I still find myself scooting up on my my boards. Yeah. You know, even if it's a thruster or a quad, I move up on them and kind of trim. And you saw what I'm, and I and I go out on much better days than we did yesterday, where there's real surf. Yeah. But you know, as I'm coming up on seventy, I get my ass spanked quite a bit out there now. Yeah. You know, but. Man, I still love surfing. That's the, the bottom line. Well, in regard to board size, I think John John redefined a lot of boundaries um, as he's come into his own. Because, first of all, he's a big kid. He's 6'2", I think. Yeah. And he's riding maxed out days at pipe on a 6'0", yeah. which is crazy to think about. Kelly certainly pushed uh, board sizes down shorter and shorter as well. But... So you can do it, and your Nick is doing it, your son. But um, he and I were out a day or two ago, and there was one Hawaiian kid. His name's Isaac, the regular Oh, fighter. Isaac Stan, yeah. Yeah. Big boy, riding a big board, and the waves weren't big, 
Uh, but he was riding a board that even looked big for him, like he would ride it in big surf. And he was ripping on that thing. I was yeah. like, I saw him paddling by and I'm like, oh, that board's way too big. It must be the only board that he has available right yeah. now. And he just brought it out on yeah. a smaller day. But he would have ridden something else had he had the choice. No. He got into wave. He got shoulder high waves and would just do the most drawn out turns and like tons of power and throw absolute buckets of spray and then it made me rethink my decision where it's like oh even though i am surfing this board out here to my ability level i would like to surf like that i would like to at least try that what he's doing and you know and i know i've known isaac since he was a little kid um when you ride a bigger board it allows you to push him harder that that's that's what i always thought is you know if you've got the right board under your feet you can push that bottom turn as hard as you want or that the big wrapping cutback, you know, you may not be a quick snap, but you're carving on the rail and yeah. you can lay that thing in as hard as you want and you know it's going to hold. Yep. And he was doing it. Yeah. He rips. No, he's a great surfer. Yeah. I think he, I mean, I, he works at Honolulu uh, Surf Company. Yeah. And then he, I think the, he's got his yeah. own surf school now. Oh, okay. Yeah, he had that Honolulu Surf Co. sticker on his yeah. board. Yeah. Um, well, let's talk about the construction of the board that you built for me. Break it down. What is yeah. it? Well, that's one of our Maui Leaf Light series, and it's a a new. Uh, not this no, has nothing to do with the designs. It has to do with the actual materials, the construction of the boards. And we're either using the U.S. Solar made blanks and or some uh, the Marco recycled, but mostly we're doing plant based epoxy, the Entropy resins, which are I find really nice to work with. Oh, okay, good. And they have three different clarities. You know, if you're doing color work, you can use the the higher plant content resin, which is a little brownish, greenish brown, very you know, just a light tint. Or you can do clear, or then there's bright. I'm pretty sure we did your board out of bright because it's pretty, it pops mm-hmm. pretty good. And then we're using uh, hemp and flax fabrics in the lamination. That uh, and I and I got to give all of that to Nick. You know, he stayed in school, got himself a sustainable science business degree at UH, and he started doing research on stuff. And you know, he was interested in the styro epoxy because when Clark Foam closed in 2006, because I had all that sailboard knowledge under my belt, that we just went straight to styro epoxy. You know, I was blessed. I I, I got a you know. 30 or 40 blanks from uh, Ted Wilson over on Oahu so of, of the Clark and when that was all folding up but just and so Nick's only been riding the styro epoxy since 2006 you know I've, I've made him a couple of poly boards he goes ah, I can't ride this isn't it's a, back to the feel yeah he seems to like the, the little bit stiffer little you know tinnier feel to it mm-hmm. um, he, but he started doing research on the materials and you know, we're in, we're importing the cloth some of it from Australia some of it from China you know organic hemp and the blanks come from the west coast um, and we're just trying to do something not only different but you know I think and we we're trying to do what's right you know I've never and I not I don't say I've never had aspirations to build a million boards I want to build good boards yeah. and I want to build boards that kind of make a difference and I think this whole new construction theory that we're working on, it's taken off. You know, if people come in to order a board, they're conscious of what they're riding. They know 
They said, well, check this out. Here's this one. It's a little more Earth user friendly. Um, it's got some better materials in it. They're a little more expensive. But, you know, I, it's also this turned into 40, 45% of the business. We're doing a lot of that stuff. And I love it. I, you know, I like, I like change. You know, I think one of the reasons I actually moved to Maui is I came over to visit some of the old friends from Russell Surfboards who were over here building sailboards. And I was doing 30, you know, 510 to 62 squash tail thrusters a week when I had my little California business going. And we were doing well, you know, things were good. But I was just burning out on this. Just, you know, when someone would order a longboard, I'd go, oh my God, something different. I came over here, kind of did some sailboards on a working vacation, kind of went home with some money. Well, okay, I could do that, you know, and, and I always liked Hawaii. Lived here in the late 60s, early 70s, and kind of had, always had this little hook in me somewhere. And I just kind of made a corporate decision. Let's just go. Roll with it. And uh, that was a good decision. Yeah. You know, the kids, both son and daughter, dad, thanks. You know. Yeah. It was a good place for them to grow up. They still have all their original friends that they went to kindergarten with. Right. You know, it's a super uh, tight community, family-oriented community, which I think is great. Well, in regard to building more kind of um, responsible surfboards, in California, we're intellectually aware that that's the correct thing to do. But... Once things leave the factory, we never see them again, and it doesn't affect our daily life, and so it's out of sight, out of mind. I feel like here, it's kind of a petri dish, and it's you you see where things go. You see the direct effect of waste and how you can actually change the course of things. So I think... um, I don't know. Yeah, no, there's, and, and waste is a huge part of it. You know, the whole surfboard, surfboard sailboard industry, when they're bringing in those 12 foot by 4 foot by 3 foot blocks of foam. Yes. And they're hot wiring out profiles of blanks. You do one of those, it's a dumpster full of scrap. They don't recycle that stuff? No. That's something that Nick is working on right now with this guy, Eddie, and another friend of ours, uh, Pete Sullivan, who's opening a big recycling center in the middle of the island. Okay. But there's no infrastructure for it yet. Right. You know, and, and it's coming from everything from food being brought in in styrofoam containers that they don't send back on the plane or the boat. They right. throw them in the, in, the, in the landfill. Right. And a whole other thing, a realization I came to, and I'm sure it's not just me, but when we moved here... The landfill was a hole in the ground, about 200 feet deep. Guess what? It's about a 400-foot-high mountain now. Really? Yeah, it's filled up. And surfboards, foam, styrofoam, right. you know, trash, all the rest of it, construction materials. It's, you look out there and go, oh, my God. You know, it's, it's incredible. And it's a small island. Yeah. You know, that's a whole nother, you know, there, there's, surfboards are being overbuilt here. You know, it's a, it is a small island. I mean, yeah, if you want to do, you could do 10 a week if you were really hustling. But there's just not the clientele for it. Yeah. There's just not the clientele. Yeah, so I don't know if we've even mentioned in the last 20 minutes, but Nick is your son. And he's got a bachelor's degree and I think it's environmental. It's actually sustainable business, sustainable science business. Got it. That's, that's the degree. But he also works for you. He glasses. He's actually boards. glassing all the leaf lights now okay. and doing a really, 
he's probably more meticulous than me. He, yeah. He's up there and he's getting out every little air bubble, and my my poor old eyes don't see that good even with the glasses on. Sure, but it's but I'm stoked that he's in there. It gives me a chance to stay closer to him. You know, my daughter has lived in California for 14 years, and she just just moved home. So yeah. we've got our family kind of back together. Well, you know. I've been talking to Nick. We've been surfing together in the mornings, and um, he's he asked me the other day. He's like, "What you know? What's your understanding of this kind of sustainability conversation?" And I'm like, "Dude, I have no understanding of it." And furthermore, uh, even the experts in the surf space, I feel like don't. I've never seen any real comprehensive longitudinal studies on any of these things that we're discussing. I know they exist outside of the surf space. Um, So I'm apprehensive to start having those conversations on air until I get the right people. Like Nick would be the right guy, you know. There's different – but I want to devote maybe a series or just kind of an ongoing theme that we touch on – about this stuff and it's okay that there's not been a comprehensive study but let's now start working towards that and having those conversations because i think there is a lot of misinformation um so nick is going to kind of help coach me along along the way but where do you see being the biggest kind of contributing factor in your business in surfboard manufacturing what is the biggest culprit for doing harm to the environment. I know that EPS can be recycled, but as you said, they're not actually recycling it here on the island. Um, Are there solutions for polyurethane offcuts and dust? What about cloth? What about resins? I want to say there are, but I'm not... uh, I don't have the, uh, the power to make those kind of decisions so yeah. to speak our biggest thing is always waste we try to you know use all the closest tolerance we are working towards getting this um, a styrofoam recycling machine here um, but that being said we're still I think what we're doing is because we're small enough that our amount of waste is maybe less you know let's say much less than a shop doing 20 boards a week or a shop doing 200 boards a week. At 200 boards a week, that doesn't matter how sustainable it is, you are generating a large amount of waste. And, and we're, not, we're, not, we're guilty as charged. Ours is just at a smaller level. Hopefully that'll be, uh, you know, balance out with the size of the island. Right. The, um, you know, the cloth off cuts. Yeah. Even the, even the, uh, the U.S. blank cutoffs you know all that stuff is not there's no place to recycle it right i mean i give some to the guy next door who has the ding repair shop and he uses it up but other than that it goes into the landfill i think people just being cognizant board builders being cognizant of like you said ordering the right blank the close tolerance Mm -hmm. blanks you're not because i mean the difference between a blank that is a good fit versus the closest tolerance could be three times the amount of waste. Sure. It looks sure. close, yeah. but it's still three times the amount of waste. Um, so making little decisions like that and being cognizant, and then, of course, repurposing wood offcuts, send it to the longboard builder down the street who wants it for tail blocks or fins or yeah. something like that. Yeah. Those little decisions, I think, can do a lot to reduce waste. I actually got an email um, this morning from an environmental lawyer who 
was referencing the um, Dave Parmenter series that I've been doing, and we've been talking about similar, you know, similar things and environmental impact and all that sort of stuff. And she goes, while it's undeniable that resin and fiberglass and foam dust is detrimental to the environment, a surfboard that most people use for years is hardly contributing to any environmental problems. Surfers do so many environmentally unfriendly things that a surfboard probably has the smallest impact of all. Consider that most surfers get in their car to drive to a surf spot. Of course, you know about the impact of the car burning fuel, but have you thought about the manufacturing of the car, metal forging, including metal forgers in California, a huge contributor of toxic metals in their, into stormwater runoffs and makes river toxic waste dumps for habitat? The tires and brake pads shed zinc, also a toxic metal. The breakfast burrito filled with bacon and chorizo is likely from pork raised in a concentrated animal feeding operation, the biggest contributors on the planet to greenhouse gases. We can get into the impacts of getting on a plane and taking an international surf trip, but you probably get the point. So I thought that was all kind of interesting, too. Very well put, though. Very well put. And, And that's where other people have way more expertise Nick does. Yes. That's what he studied. Yeah. yeah. No, exactly. Yeah. I mean, he, if you talk to him, it's all of a sudden he goes, I just sit there, it's going right over my head, kid. You know, it it doesn't go over my head so much as it feels insurmountable. Like, like reading her email, it's like, so I'm not supposed to drive my car anymore? I'm not supposed to get on a plane? Like, I'm, I'm simply not going to do that? Yeah. Or I am going to do those things. Uh, so how about give me some realistic ways that I can reduce? Yeah, well, also, hey, let's, let's all have electric cars. Which there's I, a start. I do, yeah. yeah. So, you know, I don't, but there's there. I think everything has to start with a start. Yeah. Little steps, you know, and, and, and have the uh, powers that be want to go with it instead of, and this is just a blank, say big oil. Hey, we want to keep putting gas in those cars. You know, I've said for years, hey, oil is a lubricant. It should just be used to, right. you know, oil the wheels. Electric cars, everyone should have one. Yeah. You know, but I think it's been the, the, the first electric cars were in the 70s, and they worked great, and then they shot it all down. Because they're trying to develop this thing against big lobby. Money interest, yeah. Yeah, so, yeah. so um, in regard to the Maui Leaf Light, customer can come into your shop and order a board in traditional construction or the Maui Leaf Light Correct. construction. Correct. And how much is the added cost for them? And is the market open to that? Are they accepting of it? You know, as much as I worried about that, the people that want them, they don't mind. And it's an extra 125 Okay. Um, which is not that much. Um, some of the blanks we're bringing in, because there's no distributor here for them, um, that cost me twice what they usually cost. And oh, at, wow. at first with the shipping and all, um, at first, you know, we were bringing the, the entropy resonant cause nobody had it. You know, we finally convinced fiberglass Hawaii to start carrying it, but we seem to be the only ones buying it, which is, which is fine. Sure. You know, um, Hiring for a small business is critical. It's imperative that you find a highly qualified professional to treat and grow your business with the same care and detail that you do. LinkedIn Jobs will be your next big unlock. LinkedIn Jobs has created the tools to find the right professionals for your team fast and for free. 
Everybody is already on LinkedIn with their resume and their references. So the fact that LinkedIn built a hiring platform to connect the dots between everything is simple genius. It's way more sophisticated than a job board. It's a vast network of more than a billion professionals meticulously organized to connect people by skill set, desire, ambition, all in an effort to help us advance our position. And it's easy to use and intuitive. So effective that 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Fast hiring solutions means achieving your goals in record time with rapid growth in 2024. LinkedIn Jobs will even help you write the job descriptions and give you tools and prompts to help you interview your candidate like a pro. LinkedIn.com slash surf is where you go to post your job for free. Yes, totally free. And you can let the world's largest social network of business professionals work to connect you with the ideal candidate to help you grow your business. That is LinkedIn.com slash surf to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. So yeah, the added cost and, and building an epoxy board the way we do it, they're a bit more labor intensive. Okay. You know, we're after I'm done shaping, we squeegee on a, a layer of epoxy with some thickener in it, let that kick, do the other side, and put the future boxes in or the FCS2, whichever, and then do the same thing and then lightly sand it. And then at that point, you could either airbrush it or start laminating. So there, there's just more steps. And, you know, sanding between the coats is a kind of a must with epoxy. Um, even Because once it gets hard, there's no uh, physical bond. There's just a chemical bond where you have to scrape it with some 60 grit just to yeah. get so it'll have something to grab onto. So that's, that's, it's just a matter of, uh, you know, it's a business that's supposed to make money. I, I, as much as I want to help everybody, and, and I figure I'm doing my job shaping them the best board I possibly can. One conversation I want to have with you that has a lot of different branches to it is um, has being based on Maui helped or hindered your career? Because it's it's fast. It, this is so idyllic. I never want to leave. I'm sure you don't want to leave. Uh, and in one one aspect is well, windsurfers come here, so that's a big avenue that you can pursue for business uh but getting boards off of here is also difficult so i mean if somebody in california or florida or elsewhere in the world wants to order a board from you that creates an element it's just it's an extra cost okay and we ship I've, i've been shipping worldwide since i got here i mean i've sent boards to england jeru you know israel um it's all doable it's just a matter of money What's your initial response to has being based on Maui been beneficial or? It's been beneficial for me. Okay. You know, I mean, I love it here. I like the climate. I love the the greenery. Um, Once I gave up my aspiration, and I I don't even know if I ever had an aspiration to be, you know, Rusty or Al Merrick, just to name some of the big guys. Um, I think I had an aversion to when things go wrong in a business that you have to let people go, lay people off. They're relying on you. And maybe I just didn't want that stress. So over here with you know my new business plan is we do five or six boards a week. 
we keep it all in house. There's, you know, myself. I have a wonderful young lady that airbrushes and does hot coating and puts in fin systems, and my son. It's just the three of us, and I'm able to control control the time frame of the boards as well. You know, I, there was a time when I was running, you know, two boards. I was shaping ten boards a week, and I was running putting two a day in a glass shop, and they did great work. But after five years, I would have thought I'd be getting two boards out every day, but they get lost in the mix. So I've got all of a sudden I got twenty boards over there, and I'm not getting any of them out. You know, I, I, you know, in a small business, you need income like coming in daily, Absolutely. here especially, because it's expensive. You know, I got to make three to five hundred a day here to just to make ends meet, and to take that odd surf trip. <laughs> um, now, um, not I. I said, like I said, the it's a small island, and and uh, I've been able to make it. And I, I like it here. I wouldn't really change too much. I don't want to build more boards. Uh, but with, with what we're doing now, we're making boards that matter. And I think we're, we're kind of planting a seed for the future board builders. Good. Let's get into um, your history a little bit. I know, so I live in Huntington Beach. I have for 10 years. That's your old stomping grounds. Yeah, I was actually, you know, born in L.A., um, you know, my parents um, moved to Downey in 1955 and opened the restaurant, Timponi's Italian Cuisine. I didn't know that. Yeah, and uh, they ended up with four restaurants, and that's kind of where I just grew up, bussing tables, washing dishes, um, you know, played baseball, football, you know, the because we lived in La Mirada. You know, that's, you know, that's where we ended up. We moved to Downey from East L.A. to Downey, then to La Mirada. Which is where my mom lives currently. Yeah. She's yeah. been there. She works for the school district. She's been there my whole life. There you go. Yeah, and that was a fun place. Greg Martz and I were, were high right. school surf mates. That's right. You know, and there was, you know, it's funny. A lot of the the inland guys turned out, like, you know, Stussy, one of my oldest friends, because we shaped together at Russell's. But I met him, the, like, the week I moved back from Hawaii to California, and we just became surf buddies. Yeah. But all the, and he was from Garden Grove, you know, and he just was lucky enough to have Oli as his woodshop teacher at, at was it Rancho High School? I, I don't remember the exact name. Yeah. But uh, a lot of the inland guys, I think because we didn't have the beach right outside of our front doorstep, we chased it harder. Yep. I mean, when I first got the surfing bug, it was just like, oh my God, that's all I wanted to do. I mean, when I was 16, I was playing Colt League baseball for the La Mirada Giants. And man, I got that car, <laughs> had the surfboard in the back, drove up to practice. The coach, hey, nice car, Tim Pony. Had the uniform all washed and pressed. Here, coach, I'm done. <laughs> I just drove away. You know, it was from, and see, from there, Trestles was like 45 minutes away. Yep. Rincon, an hour or so away. We, we, it was very centrally located. The 5 freeway was right, you know, a couple miles away just on the other side of Knott's Berry Farm. Yep. So it was it was a pretty neat place to grow up. Yeah. Um, how, how, what was your first trip to Hawaii then? It would have been 1968. Okay. I came, some friends were already here over on, just on Oahu, you know, just in Waikiki, just they called it the jungle, which was just like a couple blocks back from the Duke Kahanamoku statue. It was tons of little cheap rental places. And was there for a few months and then, you know, moved back to Cali. 
uh, started college like all good young men should do, and uh, failed. Um, got drafted, ran for it. Oh, really? <laughs> got on a plane with $75 in my pocket and a surfboard and a blank. And uh, flew over to Honolulu, got a job building boats. And the guy at the boat shop said, hey, you can build all the surfboards you want with the boat materials. Wow. So it was, I mean, and I wasn't building a lot of boards. That was just for myself. Yeah. You know, it, it, the reason I started building boards was because you couldn't go down to the shops and buy what was current. I mean, at that 67, 68, the designs were changing and shrinking so fast. I mean, I think I did two strip downs of strip downs. Wow. You know, I mean, they'd start off at nine feet, go to eight feet, go to seven feet, you know, and, and they just got thinner and narrower. But that's what the designs were doing. Yeah. And, you know, in Hawaii, and at the boat shop, it was right near the old Surfline Hawaii shop on P.E. Koi, right across the street from Ala Moana Center. So we were in the back lot there. Um, and it was, you know, Joe Quigg was building Joey Cabell, a 50-foot catamaran right next door to us. Wow. And uh, we were building 27 and 33-foot fishing boats. Wow. But, and it was just a quick jump over the fence and run to Ala Moana State Park for big big rights every evening after work just to wash the fiberglass and the resin off. But it just, you know, I, I didn't, there was never a grand plan. Stuff just kind of fell into place. And the boat job went for four years. And I made some pretty good money. I was able to buy a piece of property in uh, Ortega. I'm pointing over there. <laughs> I'm in Maui. Um, you know, up uh, Ortega Highway, up on the top place called Rancho Carrillo. Back in Southern California. Yes. My, yeah. my mom and my dad and my uncle, Edmund, had bought this six-acre property up there. And my uncle, Edmund, wanted out of the deal. And because I lived so frugally and I actually made good money building boats, I had, you know, 20 grand in the bank. So I just, here's 15 of it. And uh, I owned myself a piece of property. Well, that 15 turned to like 80 when we sold it. So and then I bought my first house in Huntington. Back lot on that, it was all my mom. You know, in our whole Timponi group, she was always the brains of the family. Yeah. Um, brilliant woman. Um, lived to be, you know, died at 97. Uh, and, you know, not that, that part of it wasn't that pretty, but she really helped me. I still feel her hand on my shoulder sometimes. What, what happened to their restaurants? Did they do that for their entire career? No, the, well, they, they did. Um, they started selling off the restaurants. It was a pretty big family operation. So my aunt Rosalind and her husband had were running one on um, in Anaheim. Oh God, the name of the street is escaping me. But it was one of the main drags in Anaheim, heading towards the beach. Like uh, anyway, I'll, I'll remember it when, it when it's not pertinent. And there was one in Los Alamitos. Yep. And there was one. They opened a little deli right there at La Mirada at. Uh, you know, it was Highway 39 and Lutweiler Street, which turned into La Mirada Boulevard. There was a, yep. a, I want to say one of the original Kmart's. They had a little Timponi's right next to that. But they started selling those off. Oh, okay, cool. And uh, Dad went to work for a big ravioli company as a <laughs> delivery driver. You know, they were sick of having their own business. And yeah. my mom went into real estate, and she absolutely killed it. Good. So when the time came for me to buy that first house, she had it all picked out. Sure. She kind of did all the footwork, and I just had to like fork over the money. Good. And, and houses back then, what did we pay? 85000 yeah. for a house in Huntington. 
<laughs> that's now, I mean, well, well more than 10 times that. Oh, yeah. It's not 800,000 yeah. anymore. It's probably over a million. Yeah. Um, so uh, I'm also curious real quickly, the draft dodge, you could dodge it just by going to Hawaii? That was no, far there was a little bit of a away? method to the madness. Okay. There was a method to the madness, and it, and it was really... Um, in my generation, there was a... You know, a lot of guys... We had friends that just signed up and went. Joined the Marines. I'm going. You know, they were gung-ho, and then, unfortunately, a lot of them didn't come back. Or they came back, and they were all screwed up in the head. And that had nothing to do with my reasons for not going. Um, part of it was I had been in a Catholic military school for seven years... St. Catherine's Military Academy on Harbor Boulevard in Anaheim. And I knew what the military was all about. And as a youngster who was kind of, I don't want to say I grew up on my own, because my parents were there, but they owned four restaurants. I never saw them. So it was my brother and I kind of raised ourselves. And I was hard-headed enough to go, I don't really feel like taking orders. I don't want to shine my shoes and stand for attention every morning. And you know, I knew all about guns. I'd been shooting guns since I was in second grade. And I knew what they could do. And it just, you know, I guess I was a peacenik. But the the run, the the dodging of it was you go to some place where there's a much smaller draft board. And I had been through the draft board on Ninth Street in L.A. Look at the movie Big Wednesday. And that's honest to God, that's pretty much what it was like. Where you go down there and it was like every... You saw guys that you hadn't seen since high school. You saw everyone was there. Follow the yellow line. Go upstairs. Turn left. You know, turn left and and cough. You know, you get the whole. So I've been through that. It was one A, and but I was meaning you were the first uh, yeah, priority. Yes, I was totally draftable, and it only took from the time I passed that till the time the induction papers came was maybe four weeks. And it was just like you know what. I'm out of here. And, you know, Dad supported me. He gave me 150 bucks, which was back then one-way ticket from L.A. to Honolulu was $75. And I had $75 in my pocket. Um, but what I did is at, in Honolulu, if you were a – you had to be a little bit different. So say you uh, – oh, I had a, a one guy – he drank two quarts of prune juice before he went down for his physical, walked in and pooped himself. And they just told him to beat it. He goes, oh, when I get excited, I can't control myself. Well, if I, you ain't going to be shooting a gun. You know? Yeah. So anyway, I uh, just took a different path and uh, was underweight, believe it or not. I, I got in there and I want to say I weighed about 115 by the time I got in there and they wouldn't take me. Hmm. I had to force the issue a little bit. But, sure. Uh, but it was uh, interesting. It, it wasn't my one of my shining moments, you know. As a as a young person, you make decisions. I was what I was nineteen, eighteen or nineteen years old, yeah. and that, to me now, I was a kid. I didn't know what the hell I was doing. Who? Yeah, definitely at nineteen. Yeah, no. Yeah, so so you make these decisions, and you think it's all cool, and then all of a sudden. You know, the FBI's knocking at your door out at Rocky Point and dragging you into a car and taking you down to Fort DeRussi. Okay, here he is, Jeff Dimpony, the famous draft dodger. Put him on the front lines. Did that happen? It did. Really? Yeah. So uh, when they said put him on the front lines, well, did he get shipped out? No. Oh, okay. You've got to remember, pre-computer. Okay. 
So the people at the draft board and the FBI, they were not communicating. And, and there was a whole community of guys out on the North Shore back then doing yeah, the exact same exactly. thing. Yeah. Um, Say, so, well, we don't know who this guy is. We'll, you know, um, take him over to the federal pen and it'll take three to four months to get his records transferred from California. Snail mail. Okay, so we went over there. They wouldn't take me because they were full. So they had to, I signed a paper and said, okay, if we have to come back and get you again, you don't get to go in the Army anymore. You just go to prison for five years, federal prison for five years. So I signed the paper and uh, just kind of went back to doing my thing, not thinking about it, you know, going to work, building the boats, surfing. You know, we basically, our work schedule was Friday afternoon, all day Saturday, all day Sunday, and we'd surf Monday through Friday. And it was a great gig, and I, I rode a lot of waves. At one point, we actually even moved to Kauai, lived in a camper truck, and, and I was up there for a couple of years, which was, back then it was super. I mean, we got there, the locals were happy to see us because it was somebody else to surf with. Wow. <laughs> yeah, it was pretty interesting. Um, anyway, I failed the physical and just kind of danced out, and uh, that part wasn't as, as easy as I would have liked, but, uh, but I did it. And, I, and it allowed me to pursue the boat building thing, which I learned a lot about fiberglass and resin. And then after that, building surfboards was like, oh, yawn. It's pretty easy. Sure. Yeah. Fascinating. Yeah. That is a fascinating story. It's a fascinating time in history, by the way. Well, it was, you know. And like I said, I, I have mixed feelings about the whole thing, but I definitely don't have any mixed feelings about a draft. It doesn't belong in our society. Yeah. I'm glad I didn't have to live through any of those. I mean, those are real adult decisions. Yeah, and kids were having to make it. And then, you know, the typical thought line was that if they didn't get you between, the, say, you were 18 and 21, they didn't want you anymore because it was getting too hard to mold you into what they wanted to mold you into. So, yeah. It sounds so diabolical when you put it that way, you know. Yeah, it's just weird, you know. It's, it's, it's a mindset, you know. I mean, and like I said, I'm as patriotic as the next guy. Yeah, yeah, that has nothing to do with it. Yeah, this was just, a, and it's like it was a decision that I made, be it right, be it wrong, here I am. So what year was it that you were, you said that was the late 60s? Yes. So were guys already, I mean, they were surfing pipe. The oh, North yeah. Shore was in full swing at that point. Yes, it was. Um. Who were the main board builders? Who were you taking cues from at that point? You were just building your own boards, you said? Yeah, yeah. No, basically, we lived right at Rocky Point. Tiger Asper and Barry Kaniapuni were the two Hawaiian guys, and they were at the time into writing these super narrow, like 14, 16-inch wide boards, and I loved the way those guys surfed. Not that I was anywhere near them. But I started making my boards you know, eight foot by 16 inches wide. You know, just, just these full spears with a little teeny dick fin on it. But, I, you know, I love Brewer's boards. And I think one of the guys I really respected and loved his stuff was uh, Mike Diffenderfer. Yep. He made beautiful boards, beautiful boards. And those are the guys I kind of tried to emulate until these guys I was living with at Rocky Point at the time, they had a friend uh, named Bob McTavish showed up at the house and wanted a place to stay for a couple months. So he moved in with us. And the day he got there, he showed up with a blank. 
And the next day, he hand-sketched an outline on it, shaped it, glassed it. It was a little like a Michael Peterson little egg with a single fin. And he paddled out on a thing. It was the best surfing I ever saw in my life. Really? Just totally mind-boggling. Like, you know, surfboard-wise, life-changing. So my boards went from long and skinny to brrr, right down to short with a round nose, little diamond tail, single fins. And... Uh, and but he was doing these turns, you know. Those guys were so far ahead of the curve when it came to actual maneuverability on the waves. And McTavish is a little guy. I mean, he, he's maybe a little over five feet tall. Where was that that you saw him surfing? Right at Rocky Point. Okay. Yeah, right there, Rocky Point. So head high waves, nothing huge. Yeah, no, 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 it wasn't giant. You yeah. know, it was it was you know, maybe a little overhead, but he was actually coming off the bottom and doing wraparound cutbacks. Maybe, you know, they were going up off the whitewater like they do today, but he was changing direction in ways that... And, and I was inspired by him, just so happens, from a surf film, and I want to say it was called uh, The Hot Generation. The final sequence in that movie was Nat Young, George Greeno, and Bob McTavish surfing Honolulu Bay on their those first V-bottoms. Hmm. And it was just like, that's how I want to surf. That's what inspired me to start building boards as well fascinating but you know and when i say building boards you know back then there was no youtube tutorials you built it start to finish you know made your own fin glassed them in somebody's garage rough sanded it and you were out there it's funny even you just saying that you traveled to the u.s or from the u.s to hawaii with the blank and bob mctavish showed up with a blank yeah because you don't know you if you can get supply once you get to your destination, no. but you do know that you're going to want a board for gen, uh, a certain type of wave in that area. Yeah. So you got to bring your materials with you just so you can make the board. Yeah, that's I mean, I, fascinating. I, say, I, say I had the blank and I threw my existing seven two with a glass on fin on top of it. Might have wrapped a blanket around it with some duct tape or something or some rope. Put gave it to the airport guys and it showed up in one piece. Amazing. Yeah. So. You mentioned Ted Wilson earlier. His business is Fiberglass Hawaii. I know they've been in business since 1966. Yes. So once you landed, did they have blanks available? Or oh, no. Were they, blanks they were, just, were not part of the Fiberglass Hawaii thing. They were just they? supplying the boat, boat building industry? Well, and, and I'm sure they were applying, applying, supplying the surfboard industry as well, but they were not supplying blanks. Got it. You know, when I first met Ted, he was before he actually bought Fiberglass Hawaii. Oh, okay. He was building, he was blowing foam right near where the boat shop was. And I used to go up there and I'd buy a blank that didn't fill up the mold. The nose is missing. A reject blank, maybe three or five bucks. And that was what I was shaping my first boards out of. And it was easy to do those little short, stumpy ones. Right, because nobody else probably wanted them. Well, no, he, they were just going to get thrown away. Yeah. So for me, it was easy. And I could just, I literally, I mean, it was maybe 150 feet to walk across the alley. And there was Ted. Uh, how long was he blowing blanks? And what was the name of that blank company? I think, I want to say he was working with Grubby Clark. But it wasn't Clark Foam. It wasn't anything. I just saw stuff going in and out of there because I was worked right across the alley. That's a footnote in the pages of surf history. I mean, I've never heard a name associated with that. Wilson Foam? I mean, what? It was just like I said, for I a think, short period of time? No, well, obviously it was a very short period of time because it didn't go. Yeah. He was having problems. And I don't know if it, was, it could have been the humidity that was different from California. He was using, maybe he was using an Australian formula. You know, he, Ted knew all the guys in Australia that were making foam and building boards as well. 
But I think that's what people don't realize is that is such a um, um, what is the word um, sensitive kind of chemical process. Oh yeah, that it's like it's not easy, and even the people who've been doing it forever. There's still are problems. making adjustments based on what you said, humidity and environment and all that sort it's of stuff. It's just like, so. you know, glassing a board. Sometimes I go up into my little glassing area and it's just like, dude, it's hot. You know, I, can, I better just use like a teeny little bit of catalyst. Just kind of wave the catalyst jug over the resin and it's still going off hot. Right, right, right. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, well, then, how did you find yourself in Maui? Well, move after the whole... You know, when the boat shop went under and my two partners, one guy actually was a South African, he got deported for working in the U.S. And my other friend, Kirk Pearson, who was a high school surf mate, he hopped on a boat and crewed down to Tahiti and never came back. He met a girl, had a few kids and just stayed down there. Um, and it was like, oh, I wanted to stay, but I knew I was just going to be uh, a casualty of the uh, not only the drug generation, but the whole scene. You know, it was it was it was wild. I mean, the North Shore, especially, and in Kauai, you could be in the wrong place at the wrong time and get your ass just lit up. I mean, I got punched out a couple times there. Just, hey, you look like you want to fight? No, 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 boom! You know, you just really? be getting it. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, but it was just the times, and, and you know, the surf was so good, and there was nobody there. It was just like you look past it in Kauai. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I was another time blessed to be up there. We lived in a we had a four-door Air Force surplus pickup truck. We built a camper shell over the whole thing, shipped it over there, and just moved in. And we did the same thing. Back then, inter-island flights were $10 each Wow. Way. I was making $650 every weekend building a boat. So it was like, eh, yawn. That was a no-brainer. And then in Kauai, we were you know, basically vegetarians. Yeah, we'd find an avocado tree dripping. I'd make some tortillas because I, yeah, the pizza guy. I was always in charge of making the tortillas for the burritos or or avocado tacos. Yeah, I mean, there's you could live off the land there, no pretty problem. much. Yeah. yeah, especially if you fish. Or we were vegetarian, so we weren't even eating fish. Interesting. Anyway, when I moved back, um, Greg Martz called me up one evening, and we connected as soon as I got back. Um, I want to say I shaped a board and took it to the glass shop where he was laminating, which was a place called Surf Glass up in Santa Ana okay. on Hathaway Street. And he laminated it and finished it up for me. And it actually was right outside of there. I met Stussy. Sean, I was sitting there, you know, cross-legged, checking out my new board. And this big old step van pulls up and little kid gets out with punk rock hair going straight up. It was Sean. And uh, he's, hey, nice board. I'm just dropping one off, too. He was kind of, you know, I want to say Sean's about five years younger than me. But we were kind of at the same level, board building-wise. But he was lucky. He had Oli already, you know, mentoring him. Anyway, I got hired as the sander at Surf Glass. And, yeah, you know, minimum, I sanded 20 boards a day there. Minimum. I think my world record for me was like 32 in one day. Unbelievable. Yeah, but they were easy. You know, they're all those Noebas with the fin box and the ones with the eagle on them. The, yeah. The, oh, what were they called? Anyway, they, they, they had a name. But, man, I, I, like I said, I did 20 of those every day. And Mel, or, yeah, Mel Ross was laminating and Greg Martz was laminating. And they had, I'm sure there was people coming in a hot coat and it was just a nonstop. And I was lucky enough to land that job, work there all summer. And then 
it was the business was a little more seasonal back then, so it started to slow down in the winter time. So they put me to work down at their little surf shop, which was right across from the north side of the pier. You know, there was a Wind and Sea, and across Sixth Street there was a place they called it Sixth Street Marina, and we sold. At that same glass shop, they built the first Prindle Cats. Jeff Prindle and, and Sterling Santley, the two owners, built the molds and everything in there. So I was selling catamarans, and, and they had a shop full of surfboards called Pure Joy. And that was, you know, that was a place to live. I mean, I lived there, worked there, it was, and surfed every morning. North Side was firing. Um, and then one day, Russ pulls up. Dude, I need a sander. You know, desperately, my guy got arrested. He's, he's gone. And uh, I was there the next day. Because at that time, working for Russell was, they were building the best boards in Orange County. I mean, there was guys building boards up and down the coast. But I want to say, we had, the, we had the style part of it dicked. Okay. You know, there was no airbrushing. All the colors were done in the laminations. You know, all resin pin lines. All, you know, they were just stylish boards. And lots of nose and tail blocks. Um, same glass on fin as the nose and the tail blocks. Sure. Just real matte. You know, like I said, stylish stuff. Yeah. You know, as Russ used to say, one quote from Russell, we build Cadillacs here. <laughs> yeah. Amazing. Yeah. So Maui. Oh, yeah. Spent my eight years at Russell's. Opened Tim Ponies in 1980, right there in Huntington, um, across from one of Russ's last shops up on Slater. And started coming over for visits to see some friends that had worked at Russell's. They were over here building sailboards, and they convinced me one time to bring my tools, and I made enough money to kind of plant that little light bulb. Hey, maybe we could go over there and do something different. And like I said, I always liked Hawaii, so I just made a corporate decision and told the little woman, hey, we're moving. As, and what was it about Maui as opposed to you had already spent time on Oahu and Kauai, and I would feel like you it would feel safer to go to somewhere that you knew and had roots. Very true. But I knew I didn't want to go to Oahu. It was already overbooked. It was? Yeah. And when I got, we actually did, we went to Kauai first. And we're only up there for a little while when I realized that the welcome wagon wasn't out in Kauai. It was the, the, and it was probably something I was never aware of. You know, each island has its own vibe. Of course, yeah. And the vibe just was not there anymore. I still go up there a couple times a year just to surf. I mean, I'll go surf. I love surfing Hanalei. Um, and there's some places on the west side that are just fabulous. And there's, you can still, I can still go out there and get waves. But um, I knew I could come over here and land and find work. And so we showed up. I was the roving shaper. I went from Angulo to Sailboards Maui to High Tech. I was doing, you know, 10 boards a week. And they paid a buck and a quarter a board. So was, and we rented a place and away we went. Yeah. And, you know, went into partnerships with one of the sailboard guys. And that only lasted about a year. It kind of went south. But I ended up with a glass shop and uh, started glass and all these boards. Um, that was a good move. So I mentioned this to you previously, but my first exposure to you was actually twofold. I can't remember which one came first, but it was seeing Rush Randall doing back a backflip on a board that had your logo on it on Maui in a magazine. And I was just blown away. It was like, I was really new into surfing and I'm like, well, there's a backflip. That's better. Yeah. That's different. 
And then I think, so that must have been first because it was familiar with the logo. And then a friend of mine in high school had a board, a Timponi short board. And so I traded him. I think, you know, it's like you ride a board for a while, you get the feel for it, and you just want something new. You're looking to move on, yeah. Yeah, and I had I had a board that he was interested in, so we just swapped. And then oh, I cool. rode that Tim Pony. And it was um, of the, you know, super thin, super rockered out, mid-90s, uh, high performance, very thin, short board thruster era which didn't do me any favors at all. It's like I was learning to surf. Mm-hmm. So the, just yeah, you had the exact opposite of what you needed. Totally. Just sitting on it was problematic, you know. <laughs> I'm like buried up to my chest in water yeah. like <laughs> trying to catch waves and stand up and rip. But anyway, um that I think is an interesting little detour in surfing. I mentioned Rush Randall. For people who aren't familiar, he was strapped in that you was how the whole that toe-in era? thing started. And so the toe-in thing wasn't into big waves. They were towing oh, no. them into. Now, you know, it actually, there was no towing. A few of the guys came to me because their shapers wouldn't put foot strap inserts into their surfboards. These guys were professional. Rush was a professional windsurfer. Mark Angulo, Dave Kalama, they were all professional windsurfers they were used to the foot strap, foot strap, foot strap, strap. connected surfing thing and I kind of went wow surfing snowboarding connected rubber. I kind of saw the oh that, that makes sense they were paddling into waves standing up plugging their feet into the straps and they get a couple turns and boom they do a flip or do a big aerial like one of my original business cards I had a picture of Mark Angulo just he's like flying through the air you can barely see the wave way down there, but he's just down the line going over a section wow. but with the foot straps. Wow. And it just made sense. I did not know that they were paddling into those yeah. waves. Yeah. I mean, the first, and, and this is another, just a little insight into the whole thing. The first time I saw any of it, I was driving, and this is when I had my shop in Kahului. I lived in Haiku, actually on the same street that the shop's on, on West Kuiaha. We lived, had rented a place in the back there right on the gulch. Anyway, I was driving, coming back from town or the shop, because the shop was downtown at the time, and I pulled over because I saw one guy out at Hokipa, and it happened to be Laird. And he, back when he was shortboarding, he had booties with Velcro and Velcro pads on the deck of his board, and he would just, he'd take off, he'd stick his feet down, and we were stuck. But he'd... Boom, he was doing these big trying stuff, and he fell a lot, but also, boom, he landed a couple of things, and that was the first connected surfing I saw. What a freak. Yeah, and he was like, he was ahead of, the, ahead, of, ahead of the pack that was already chasing him down. But they formed a group called the Strapped Crew, yeah. and they started making those radical attitude, which is, it was just fun. It was fun. But it, and, and then, I want to say Buzzy... Toad Laird into a into a wave at Backdoor on Oahu. No, it wasn't Backdoor. It was Backyards, outside Sunset. And there's a and Laird was riding. I want to say he was riding one of his stepdad Billy's boards. It was it was like a ten foot balsa gun. And that's how the the towing thing started. You know, I want to say they they used a, a Zodiac or something. Yeah. And that's what they started there, and then went to uh, you know anything they could get, and boom, the jet ski. And and it and then it, there was no jaws. 
they started off towing into small waves and kind of built their way up, and then all of a sudden they're at outer Sprex, which is one of the outer reef spots here on Maui. It's, it's a 45-minute paddle out, but it's a great wave. And they had uh, helicopter footage, and it was just all time. So they started making their little movies. And, uh, and I don't remember... I have a picture of Kalama in the shop on one of the original tow boards. And that, that tow board is probably 710 and 15 inches wide. Super concave bottom, like a water ski. But he's dropping into, you know, 20-foot wave and doing a big bottom turn. And uh, it just, oh, that was it. And it was just like, and those guys dominated it out there for years. Um, they had it wrapped up. And they'd been in it before flotation, you know, it was before anything. Oh, yeah. They were just winging it. Um, and thank God none of them perished. Yeah. You know. It's calculated risk, you know. Total. They're, Total. All, they're all complete watermen. Total. You know, they were the ones that started the whole running underwater with rocks right. and doing all the training and stuff. And, uh, but that was a fun time. See, and for me, I always, I like the challenge of, of putting my, my talent to work doing different stuff. Yeah. Oh, you want a stand-up paddleboard? Well, sure. And those all started off with that 12-foot-4 tandem blank that Clark used to make. So, hey, they were limited. We can only make them 25 inches wide. Then we started ordering with extra foam on each side of the strainer. They kept pushing them out, getting them a little thinner, a little more surfy. You know, and I think those guys just started doing it because they wanted to get more waves. Sure. You know, they started off with bigger boards, just paddling in. You know, um, and Laird was a phenomenal longboard, and Dave too. You know, and, and the other guys all went in different directions. You know, there was, you know, the original foiling. Was, was happening. It was a thing called the air chair. Oh, yeah. That had a foil attached, but it was literally like like that chair attached to a foil. And yeah. you'd sit there and try. They start doing this dolphining thing and it'll simply be like, whap. You yeah, just yeah, get yeah. a face plant. That's crazy. So that, I mean, you mentioned Jaws. Those innovations made Jaws surfable. Because oh, totally. Jaws was only accessible via tow. Yeah. Yeah, at the time, no, well, no one imagined that you could paddle into it, right. which has been totally proven wrong. Right. But it was, but the boards you know, kept evolving. There was probably a ten-year period there where the boards just evolved and got smaller and heavier, and not you couldn't go much narrower because you needed to have your feet on them. Yeah. But uh, I, I like the challenge of being able to take someone's ideas and put it onto a surfboard, and. Uh, figure out the fin placement and the cant and the toe and all of the stuff. That, and, and most of those boards, we just ran the fins straight. I mean, that's what's interesting about you talking about the the strapped crew or even layered with the, the, Velcro. the Velcro, which is you can't shuffle your feet. I need to shuffle my feet on every wave I'm on, obviously, like you all both, the time. Yeah. 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 So it's it's weird no, to I think, think that's just a, commit to you know, it. And I think in, in you know, and like I said, all those guys were professional athletes, even though that that term's way different now. Yeah. But they just conquered by I think sure strength and will. You know, Laird would plant his feet and just make it happen. Even yeah. if he wasn't in the right spot, he would go. Yeah. Does he still live on the island? I know No, he lives in I'm pretty sure he lives in Kauai oh, part time okay. and I think he lives in uh Point Doom. Malibu, yeah. Cave area, yeah. I knew I knew that. I didn't know 
where his home was on the islands. So I want to say he sold his place here and he's got a place over there. Okay. It's become, I mean, it's funny to think, um, I mean, lots of celebrities now and high profile people have homes here. Oh, it's yeah. It's kind of interesting yeah. how it's like still small town feel and you probably see everybody throughout the course of the year at yeah. the yeah, local the, restaurants. Yeah, foods, the yeah. health food store in Paia. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's fascinating. Um, uh, that's, and that's still, and it's still kind of got that small town feel to it. The only thing that's really changed is the amount of traffic. Right. Yeah, I mean, that, there was never traffic here before. Yeah. And, and now it's just like, okay, it's, just, it's a part of the growth, you know, and it's tourism. Yeah. And it's, there's more people living here. So I actually was curious about Jaws. How do you think Jaws has, is Jaws positively or negatively affected the local uh, A, surf community, and B, economy? I think it's helped. You think, think so? It's, oh, totally. Because they, they have big contests there. It does bring in people. You know, when Jaws is breaking, it's pandemonium down there. There's guys running tours. They'll charge you 10 bucks for a ride in and a ride out. Um, there's people making food down there. You know, it started off with some guy had to ride it. Because there's three, 400 people on the block. Those are all tourists. They hear Jaws is up there driving. It's a traffic jam on the Hana Highway. But you start off with the guy. He just like went home one night and froze a bunch of lemonade and put sticks in it and was down there selling them. Yeah. And it just blew up from there. Good. I mean, because there's no hotels. No. There's no, no hotels. There's very few restaurants. Yeah, no, this, this is the North Shore has not changed much at all. I guess, it, I, you know, I stopped going down there. And I used to go down there a lot. Um, but... I want to say it was after Mark Fu died, and I didn't know Mr. Fu, but I also realized, you know something, like how my friends are out there, I don't want to watch one of them not come up or get thrown onto the rocks or, you know, I, it was just kind of like, you know, I can watch on the video, I can see pictures, that's enough. Interesting. Yeah. Um. That is a perfect segue to my next kind of line of wrap-up questions, which is, what do you actually watch? What do you follow? At this point, Do you, uh, in terms of surf media, are you watching the WSL events and keeping track? Are you subscribing to magazines? Where do you get your surf content? Uh, you know what? I do watch the WSL stuff because I find it super fascinating. And the, the, the surfers are incredible athletes. They're, they're doing, they're, you know, when I was... Back when I was their age, I couldn't have imagined what they're actually doing. Yeah. I mean, we used to draw pictures about being in the barrel or just, you know, mostly pictures of just waves because we had these fantasies. Well, now Kelly's made the perfect wave. Um, the, you know, I mean, I love the way all of Gabriel Medina is incredible. I mean, I look at the way he surfed. He's like, oh, my God. The guy's like, a, like a, from another planet. It's like a robot. Yeah. Just doesn't yeah. fall, does what he wants to do. Yeah. And, it, and it, what he does when he wants to do, or when he does what he wants to do, it's unbelievable. Yeah. Um, so I, I love watching that. I subscribe to the, to the Surfer's Journal, and it's, it seems like it's gone through some changes. And I can honestly say that I really like the older incarnation because they had more vintage stuff. Maybe... Um, it's my age, you know. But with the the stories of the guys that were before me, I always found fascinating. You know, the guys diving for lobster and abalones off of Laguna, and they said it was just covered. You know, the, you know stuff like that. Those guys were real watermen, 
Um, and not that the surfers today aren't, but it's just different. You know, it's just it's gotten modern. But I, but uh, other than that, I listen to the podcast as much as I can. Sometimes I, as usual, I get home and I'm doing stuff I forget to download because I can't download at the shop. I got to do oh. it at the house with the Wi-Fi. It's all technical stuff. Yeah. Um. Are you on Instagram? You have an Instagram account. We do. I do not pursue it. You don't look at it? I get all the information from my son. He does all of the social media stuff. Yeah. We, we sit there almost every morning and go over um, what's what he's posted, what people are saying. He is that that's kind of his job. Yeah. I for, mean for me it was like I was I did Facebook for years. But I, at the end, it was just like I'd find myself sitting there, and all of a sudden, three hours went by. I know. And that I was talking to old friends from high school or, you know, whatever. Yeah. That crap, i got to make some money. Yeah. No, that's a huge problem for me, too, is the amount of time that it yeah. occupies. Yeah. The, I mean, I, it's beneficial for business to be able to promote your things. But I would think that you would um, get some of what you were just saying Surfer's Journal maybe used to provide or whatever – I think you would get some of that out of Instagram. It's interesting to just see. You can see what Bob McTavish is up to. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Like, no, no, Nick and I are going to, he, you know, he's been threatening to set my own, just a personal Instagram guy. because you don't have to talk to anybody. This is just so you can look and see what's going on. Yeah. And, and you know, and, and as you will find out being around me, I love to talk. You know, I'm, I'm a pretty good talker. So uh, that's why I want to get on those things. It's like, oh boy, here we go. It's, yeah. You got to make it work for you. Exactly. Exactly. Like all of technology is created with the kind of promise of synthesizing your life and maximizing efficiency and all that sort of stuff. But left to our own devices. We'll try to over maximize. Totally. (laughs) Totally. Um, This morning, Brittany caught a gecko in our bedroom and ran it out the front door. I opened the door and she dumped it out in the bushes and I posted the video of it on Instagram. My dad was sitting right where you're sitting. We did it right behind him right there while he's just reading the morning paper on his iPad. And then I sit down on the sofa. He pulls up Instagram and goes, Hey, I saw you guys catch that gecko in your bedroom. <laughs> like, Yeah, dad, it was five minutes ago, three feet away from you. Yeah, and you, you missed did. it. It was like the ultimate Exactly. Now that's one of the uh, the perks of living in Haiku. You get geckos everywhere. You can't keep them out. They're not a problem, really. Oh no, yeah. There's just the, all the the rest of it that goes with them. You know, right. Centipedes and cockroaches and jungle living at its finest. But somebody then commented on that Instagram. The gecko actually takes care of those things, right? So you want to leave the gecko so that you don't get the cockroaches. Yeah. The cockroaches always seem to outnumber the geckos. Oh, really? I think the geckos cannibalize themselves. Really? Oh. Yeah. This is a perfect segue back to our, um, or full circle back to our sustainability conversation. <laughs> Leave the ecosystem intact and yeah. those things take care yeah. of. No, we have to work around it. Yeah. We're, we're, we're the intruders here. Well, the final question for everybody, obviously, is just what was the last surfboard that you rode? But I rode it with you yesterday. So why don't we make it a broader conversation about yesterday's session? Um, but let's say it's a Waikiki-esque wave. Um, 
Yeah, reef break, I mean, casual reef yeah, break. Yeah, just a South Shore spot in amongst a whole bunch of South Shore spots that wasn't crowded. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of a nice glidey wave. You, you know, when it's good out there, it's actually good. Yeah. And you just surf the outer part of it, and you get a, you know a few good turns and a cutback, and it's and it's kind of over. But like yesterday, it was more like Waikiki, where you could just stay in the white water and kind of start connecting little, you know, the swells as they popped up on each part of the reef as you rode in. You know, and it, and it's fun. Yeah, you know, that's what surfing's become for me. It's just it's supposed to be fun. I mean, it was a kind of a, it was an epiphany session. I shouldn't say an epiphany. Because I've had the epiphany a few times. Um, wasn't the first time I've had it. But it's like, man, this is so fun. Surfing is so fun. And often you're, um, there's fear that you're combating or there's just performance anxiety that you're combating and all these things. Or crowds that you're combating and you're looking at a surf spot and there's various guys surfing that part of the reef and other ones. So you're making an assessment. Yesterday, it was like, we show up, the waves look small, uh, and so it's like, oh, zero expectation. Slightly onshore. Riding a big board, so that's going to be easy. I have no expectation, no performance anxiety, no anything, just go out there. And had the most fun ever. Like, had more fun doing that than I do when the waves are head high and good and I'm surfing well, quote unquote. By the way, you're a good surfer. Thank you. You surf well. Thanks. Um, you loaned me a board. It was an 8-3. I don't even know. How, what What would you classify that board as? It's my short board. Yeah, because, <laughs> I mean, I almost want to tell listeners it's a fun board, but it's not. It has a pointy nose. Well, yeah, but it's more of a hybrid-y nose. Yeah. You know, it's not, a, not a, like a contemporary short board nose. No. But the board's 23 and a quarter wide and a little over three thick. But it's 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 like it's my performance board. Yeah, I'd say a foot back from the nose, it's pretty wide, but it yeah. comes to a point. Yeah, and um, paddles like a longboard. It was a quad fin setup, and it's like totally maneuverable. I was able to bank off sections, do kind of big cutbacks, um, but then also when the wave was fat and slow, trying to connect with maybe an inside reef or like a wave that was coming from down the reef the thing glided across flat water completely almost like i was on a foil or something yeah. it was like yeah. crazy well, did you notice we were going as far as the guys that were out there with us at the end on the foil totally you know so it's just like hey yeah, they got nothing on us totally and covering 100 yards at, well, at least, least. Yeah. i mean yeah. covering when you, when you got a long distance. one it's probably 140 yards yeah so, I mean, that was a blast. But the question still remains, what was the last surfboard that you rode? Well, I rode my nine-foot quad setup longboard. Kind of a performance, you know, but it's wide. It's 20, 23-something, and I think the nose is like 17. Tail's kind of pulled because I ride it on the North Shore as well as the South Shore. Okay. Um, you know, I've taken it to Mexico, worked great at Cordon, that nice left point break down there in, in this north of Mazatlan. Um, it's, it kind of took a board, an eight-foot board that I had for years that had that same tail. Something about that tail that just works for me. You know, and it's, just, it's not even a pin. It's just a, a radial tail but pulled. Okay. And it just seems to, it just fits my style. Um, is it built in Maui leaf-like construction? It is not. It's just a regular poly. Okay. Awesome. Mostly because I... 
at first they didn't have the blanks that I wanted to use in the leaf light, but I'm going to build myself a, a nine foot leaf light, basically a duplicate of that board that I was riding yesterday. And then the same thing, I'm going to build something up. I'm going to attempt to go a little bit shorter than eight, three, maybe crack the set, the eight foot mark goes seven eleven or something. But it'll be the same board, but it's going to be the leaf light, so it floats a bit better. That's what I was going to say. Yeah, with that EPS, you'll yeah. get some of that yeah. buoyancy. Yeah, and we'll see if I like it, you know, because I've been, you know, I don't, I'm not doing aerials. Weight's not that big of an issue for me. Right. And uh, the light boards that I've had, they have a different feel. You know, they're, they're, the epoxies are tinny. I, I don't know how else to put it. They just seem a little more, uh, like they got a shell on them or something. Yeah. Which mine doesn't feel that way. Because that was my concern as well with this board that you made for me. And uh, it doesn't feel that way. It feels damp in a, yeah. pos- in a positive uh, yeah, way. Yeah, no, I think that's the hemp from on okay. the whole deck. Okay. I think it really kind of dampens the whole thing. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you. David, thank you. That was wonderful. Yeah, wonderful. Jeff Timponi, much appreciated, and I appreciate your hospitality while my family and I were on Maui. Thank you, listeners, for all of your support. You can find everything that Jeff and I discussed on our website, surfsplendorpodcast.com. I'll link to Jeff's website and his social media and all that sort of stuff there. Check out his work. Order a Maui Leaf Light. They can get it to you for really inexpensively, actually, um, in terms of shipping from Maui to anywhere in the world. And then, of course, take advantage of Spy's generous $500 gift card giveaway this month. You've got five days left. We're going to pick one winner who uses the promo code podcast on spyoptic.com on November 20th. And then you'll have another opportunity between November 20th and December 20th, just in time to use that gift card for Christmas gift giving. I'm off to Charleston to go surf Folly Beach. It's actually kind of pumping right now. People are sending me photos and uh, eager to surf that and see that. All right. Thanks again, David Scales, signing off, reminding you to get back into the water, share a couple of waves, and shred on.